Well, thank you for coming. And uh, today we're going to talk about personal evangelism. And I don't know about you, personal evangelism can be pretty difficult sometimes. You ever try it? If you're like me, it's very difficult. It can be complicated. I think it could even be scary. So uh, today I'm going to have to go like at warp speed and run through. Uh, I have a lot of material. And the handout I give you, uh, you don't have to look at right now. At the end, I'd like to go over some techniques. So first, I just want to make some general comments. Then I want to talk about some statistics that I found. And then uh, talk a little bit about postmodernism and some of the difficulties you're going to face when you try to share your faith. I'm going to go over a little bit about the persuasion literature. And then finally, I want to go over some of these techniques and so forth with the paper that I gave you. Um, I'll stop once in a while to, uh, if you have some short questions or whatever. And at the end, um, 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 I'll, I'll see if, uh, if I can do a, a question and answer period. Um, so first of all, let me just make some general comments. Um, as you probably realize, uh, personal evangelism takes a lot of courage because sometimes you might be rejected, you might be ostracized. Um, some people have even gotten fired from their jobs. So, um, you know, it, it, it is tough. And even Apostle Paul said, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And if Paul felt like that, can you imagine, um, you know, how we feel? Uh, and it's, it's very difficult. Have you ever tried to get somebody to switch their political party <laughs> or change their stance on abortion? That's, uh, that's a little difficult, I find. So um, anyway, it takes uh, great courage. And you'll learn from your mistakes. I remember one of the first things I did. Uh, I read a book by, uh, was it Paul Little, I think? And he had some questions you could ask people to start a conversation. So he said, ask people, like, are you interested in spiritual things? So I thought, well, let me try. So I, uh, my wife and I lived in a townhouse down in Newark, and I was sitting on the front stoop with uh, uh, my next-door neighbor. So I thought um, I'd try it. So I said, uh, are you interested in spiritual things? And he stood up without saying a word, turned around, and went back inside. So that did not go well. So I, I have never used that again. And now when I think about it, of course people aren't interested. Why would we think that a lot of people are interested in spiritual things? I have found they just aren't. So you, you'll learn a lot just by uh, your mistakes. Um, so um, some other things. First of all, the, the, the Bible's not... Uh, a handbook on personal evangelism. It's not a handbook on child rearing, things like that. So um, obviously we can learn some things from the Bible, but it's not going to be um, maybe as specific or as practical. Um, and you don't have to have the uh, spiritual gift of evangelism like Billy Graham either. Uh, not many of us can do that. Now, Peter says, always be prepared, you know this verse, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Um, but here's the problem. Are we prepared? Are we prepared for it? Uh, I'm not sure. What if somebody asks you, why do you believe in the resurrection? Or why do you even believe that there is a God? Or why does God allow um, suffering and evil? Why would a good God allow that? So these are difficult questions. So are we really prepared? Then it says, um, for anybody who asks, well, I don't know, but you have only had one person in my whole life ask me about it. And after they asked me, then they said they had to go to a restroom and I didn't see them after that. So how many people are really going to ask us? I think very, very few, because I, I don't know about you. I know a lot of agnostics or atheists that are very wonderful, nice people, don't you? So I don't know if they're going to, at least I'm talking about myself, see me, wow, what a wonderful, fantastic guy this guy is. I'm going to ask him why he's so different. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe you've had that experience. Uh, God bless you if you had. And of course, he says with gentleness and respect, and that's important. Um, I do a lot of couples counseling. It's, of, of course, it's not just what we say. It's how we say it, how we talk, our tone of voice. And if you can talk a little softer and slower, 
that really can make a big difference. I always ask couples to talk about that. One of the most important things you can do, whoops, I forgot to set my timer just a minute, is to strengthen your own faith. I mean, you can't really give away what you don't have. And, you know, just coming to church and Bible studies and small groups and Christian books and studying Christian theistic uh, apologetics, things like that. So let's go over some statistics because it's pretty, um, it's pretty discouraging, to tell you the truth. I'm sure you probably knew this already. In the 1960s, only 2% of the people uh, in our country did not believe in God. Now it's up to 20%. So one out of five people don't even believe in God. And as far as people identifying as Christians, uh, it's from 2008, 78% of the people said um, they were Christians. Now it's 63%, so it dropped 15%. But this is really um, uh, discouraging. George Barna, who is a major uh, statistician and does all sorts of polls and everything like the Pew Institute, he, he believes that only 8% of the population are Christian. So in other words, 63% identify as Christians. He says as far as biblical Christians only about 8%. That's not good news, is it? Um, so a lot of people out there think they're Christians that probably aren't. Um, as far as the baby boomers, baby boomers are far more religious. 60, uh, 76% said they were uh, Christians. Millennials, only 49%. So especially the millennials and the Gen Z generation are are not tend to be Christians. When I ask a lot of people when I do therapy in the first session, I'll, I will usually ask, are you, you have any religious affiliation or spirituality? And it's amazing how few do. Um, so it's, it's pretty alarming. Now, why are a lot of these people, especially the younger people, rejecting Christianity? Sometimes because they identify with being a conservative and being a Republican, which this day and age is kind of uh, scary. And they also, especially if they identify with the MAGA Republicans, then you're in real trouble. Also, they see a lot of the Christian community is hostile to the LGBTQ. That's another reason. Other ones, they just think it's arrogant to believe there's only one true religion. You know, that, that's, you know, very arrogant. And other thing, they think it's just blind faith. They think, well, it's just a matter of faith. And, and I, I've actually had heard people say when they're trying to witness, like, well, it's just a matter of faith. And that doesn't really go over very big with uh, many people. So the, the statistics are, are uh, upsetting. Oh, this is an article I found out in the news just um, a couple of days ago. Let me read this to you. During the 2022-23 school years, Charmaine Champion Shaw, a lecturer in the Department of Native American and Indigenous Studies, designed a bulletin board exhibit named Exploring Christian Privilege. One part said Christian privilege is directly connected to white supremacy and settler colonialism. At the core of the display was a Christian privilege checklist inviting readers to reflect on how their status as Christians may grant them certain advantages in various aspects of life. Now, fortunately, I have that survey that, I'm, no, I don't. But uh, that is uh, a little alarming, isn't it? That I, I, that's the first time I've heard that, so you must all be white supremacists, right? That's, that's a shame. Also, there seems to be, uh, this is something new too, especially the young people, a fascination with Eastern mysticism and uh, New Age philosophy. Uh, things like Star Wars and Avatar and even the kids' move, uh, movie uh, uh, Pocahontas have like this Eastern theme running through it. Um, a lot of the younger kids I find are into Buddhism. And when I go to workshops on therapy, it's amazing how many, um, how they'll quote the Buddha all the time. Um, how dare you if you even uh, mention the name of Jesus? But um, so, as far as Christians, did you know 29% of people who identify as Christians say they believe in incarnation? 50% of 
people um, say they're uh, are into what's called pantheism. Everything is God and God is everything. 40% of Christians uh, believe in psychics. Uh, 45% of Christians, yeah, this is identified as Christians, uh, believe 45% feel you can go to heaven without even a belief in God. And as far as many religions lead to eternal life in heaven, 58% of identified Christians. So you see the problem here? We, we've got a real problem. So if the, the culture has changed this much, why even try it? Why even try? Well, first of all, obviously Jesus commanded it in the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And Paul says, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So you are in a unique position. Uh, Nate Keeler or uh, a missionary is not going to be coming to your workplace or your Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, or to your neighborhood. You are in a unique position. So, and we are always rewarded. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible where Jesus said, and if anyone gives even a cup of cool water to one of these little ones, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So are you going to convert a lot of people in your lifetime? Not much, but you will be rewarded if, if you do that. Paul says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. So why did not, why even do it? But obviously because people need love. And I've studied the other religions. And believe it or not, Christianity is the only religion that even teaches that God loves us. Um, I've read the whole uh, Quran, never saw it in there. I've read the Bhagavad Gita. It says God's indifferent to us. He neither loves us nor hates us. People need love. And the other thing, there's a mental health crisis that I, I bet you you've uh, seen on TV and everything. The depression rate, the anxiety, the suicide rates are soaring, especially in the younger generations. So they need that. Uh, people are, are lonely. With their, their, their desperate people have no purpose and meaning in life. And think about what we have to offer them. Um, this is something the ex atheist and existentialist uh, Albert Camus said. This is one of the scariest things. He says, life is an empty bubble floating on a sea of nothingness. Isn't that a great line? You know, and, and that, but that's what atheism leads to. Sartre said life is absurd. So what are the, what are the difficulties you're going to face? Obviously, people are going to be hostile to Christianity, or at least just apathetic. They just don't care. And a lot of times it's not that they can't believe it's that they don't want to believe. And I'm going to talk about that more uh, when I give you my handout. So um, other problems we, we face are just fears of rejection. Christians tend to be very nice people, aren't we? We don't want to uh, offend anything. Of course, all the negative stereotypes that you see when, when you watch movies and TV shows. How many times did they show a Christian person in, in, in a very positive light? A lot of times they're, they're, people think of Christians as arrogant, we're self-righteous, we're hypocritical, judgmental, we're intolerant, and we're even oppressors. The most positive Christian um, portrayal I've seen is on The Simpsons. <laughs> on The Simpsons? <laughs> what do they say there? Oh, um, Ned Flanders is uh, next door neighbor. Oh, is he? I don't watch The Symptoms and... and uh, Leaving money on the table. You must be a bad Christian if you want. <laughs> so, so we are dangerous. Some people see us as dangerous. So, what do we need? We need to disconfirm the the um, that by our loving and compassionate behavior. Another problem is people are so. Uh, rich in this country. Think about it. We have more than the kings of old. They didn't have refrigerators and stoves and all of that. So people feel self-sufficient in our country, especially people that are well-do. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that's the problem, too. We're just too well-off. People don't see a need for it. Postmodernism is a big uh, problem, and uh, I don't know how much you know about that, but in postmodernism, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Pilate said, what did Pilate say? What is 
truth. So he even was questioning that. And it's like, you have your truth, I have my truth. Uh, they think it's arrogant for anybody to say, you have the truth. So uh, even in AA, and NA, you know how they say, there's, uh, you make up a God of your own understanding. A God of so, in other words, we can create God, a, a nice little God that doesn't really uh, demand much uh, to us. So there's no uh, absolute truth. There's no objective moral values either that are true for all people in every historical era. Things are relative now. Relativism, there's two types. Personal relativism says, I will decide what's true and what's not. I will decide what's right or wrong. The other is cultural relativism, which is a problem that 50, 50% plus one person makes it right or wrong. So most of the people believe that slavery is okay. I guess it's okay or Nazism or whatever. So that's very dangerous. You know, two thirds of the people polled in this country said they had no sins to be forgiven. So do you see the problem? That's really serious. Religious pluralism. All religions are ultimately the same and lead to God. Scientism, which means they believe something is true only if science can uh, prove it. Obviously, science cannot prove uh, God. Um, you, know, you all know Stephen Hawking. Listen to what he says. It's amazing how brilliant people like this think they're philosophers when they've had no training. Hawking says, no one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads to a profound realization that there's probably no heaven and no afterlife either. I think belief in afterlife is just wishful thinking. It sounds like Sigmund Freud, doesn't it? There's no reliable evidence for it and it flies in the face of everything we know in science. Okay, so obviously he's an atheist, but another atheist, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Anthony Flew. He was a philosophy professor at Oxford, no less. And he, he, I've even heard debates with him, him being the atheist. He wrote like 10 books on atheism. And he wrote another book and it says, there is no God, but he crossed out the no and put a, uh, there is a God. And what's interesting, he said, what changed his mind? was recent scientific discoveries. And that's shocking to a lot of people. And I have a website, by the way, I put it at the top there, where there's papers, some I've, I've written uh, and other people, one on uh, the scientific evidence for the existence of God that I think you'll, you'll really like that goes over that. Let me go over some theoretical issues. Uh, one thing, uh, the way I look at it in my book is, is you have a continuum any, anywhere from very receptive and I don't know how many of those people you can find to very resistant. Right? You can be at those extremes, and it'd be nice if most people were in the middle, but I think it's, it's gone far more uh, this way. So for the receptive people, sure, you can share the gospel, share your testimony and other uh, doctrines. Um, but what about for the resistant people? For that, you need more what I call strategic event. The reason I call it strategic is because I do offer you a lot of uh, techniques and strategies. And some of the stuff I borrowed it from, from being a psychotherapist, I do what's called cognitive behavior therapy, which are a lot of techniques like cost-benefit analysis, stuff I'm going to share with you in a minute. But there, there's so many people that are uh, very resistant. But don't assume. Some people, have you ever been surprised? Some people I thought there would be not interested in God or Jesus at all that really are. And then some people I thought would or are not. Have you ever found that? It's, uh, it's interesting, so try not to, you know, to prejudge people. Um, next are the fewer spiritual law booklets. Here is, oh, well, let me quote this for a second. Um, characteristics of the resistant. Jesus said, God's light came into the world, but people love darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. All do all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. I think that's not only a theological statement, that's a good psychological statement to explain human nature. But, but what about for the receptive? He says, but those who do what is right 
come to the light so others can see they're doing what God wants. This doesn't mean we're saved by earning our salvation or by good works, though. But obviously he's saying if people are trying to do what's right, uh, they're more humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Hopefully they'll be more receptive. What about the four spiritual laws? Do you know that? Have you memorized it? Do you know that tool? Um, the, here are some of the problems with it in this day and age. The, the, uh, if you're receptive, you know, maybe you can share uh, the gospel. But if they're very resistant, they even have trouble going through that. The first step is God loves you. But what if they don't believe in a God? <laughs> you know, you're stuck right there. Next step two, sin separates us from God. But the um, person not believe, may not believe they're a sinner. Remember, two-thirds of the people felt that they weren't. Christ died for our sins. Well, why did somebody have to die for my sins? And accept and commit your life to Jesus as, as your Savior and Lord. Well, so what? Who's Jesus? He's just a good moral teacher, right? He's not the Son of God or anything like that. And the resurrection, that's just a myth. Okay, so I don't know if you know uh, the um, the evidence for the historical evidence for the resurrection. I think one of the best books I've ever read, the best short book on Christian apologetics, is More Than a Carpenter. Anybody ever read that? Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. It's the best short book. I give that out to prison when I go. Uh, next is the difference between Christian and theistic apologetics. What's apologetics? That's giving a defense for the faith. What is the evidence for whatever? And uh, Christian apologetics goes over especially the historical evidence for the resurrection, and there are many other good uh, arguments. Theistic apologetics uh, is goes over the evidence, the scientific evidence that there is, it, there there even is a God in the first place. And um, here's a couple quotes by some theologians that write a lot of books. I really respect these guys. William Lane Craig, when it comes to apologetics, he says rational arguments for the truth of theism are no longer supposed to work, but by laying aside our best weapons of logic and evidence, the consequences in the next generation will be catastrophic. And Hank Conagraph, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, he says, too often people suppose the task of apologetics to be the exclusive domain of theologians. Not so. The defense of the faith is not optional. It is basic training for every Christian, and that means you. It takes a lot of work. To, to be a therapist, I'm still learning. I still make mistakes, but it's taken me seven years of college and 30 years, and uh, uh, it's still very difficult. So that's the thing. How prepared are we? So, first of all, sometimes people need to believe that God exists. Um, Norman Geisler, if you ever heard of him, he's a philosophy professor. So sometimes you have to move him over to belief in God, then up to the Christian faith. So, um, Paul says, he says, um, Without faith, it is impossible to believe, to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Anyone who comes to God must believe he exists. And that's the problem. So many don't. And then he says, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I have a problem there. But people aren't earnestly seeking him, are they? They're more running away from God. I call it, they're playing a game of hide and no seek. And so that's the thing. Are you prepared? Or at least do you have... A handout. If you look on the website I have, there's lots of different handouts on religious pluralism, on the scientific evidence for God, on the resurrection, on heaven and hell. There's a lot of stuff there that, um, that I hope you'll look at. So why do people not want to believe? That's the problem I found. It's not that they can't. They don't. It's because they have negative biases. They have negative biases against God and Christianity. Norman Geisler says, People doubt for intellectual, emotional, and volitional reasons. Only by digging deeper can we find out whether the doubt is emotional or volitional. If people don't want to believe for emotional or volitional reasons, they, then all the apologetics in the world is not going to convince them. 
So sometimes people have intellectual problems, like aren't all religions the same, or how could a good God allow suffering and evil? So those people are a little bit easier to work with to uh, if they have an intellectual problem. Sometimes they have emotional problems. Maybe they have gone to a church that was very judgmental. Maybe they've had a parent or some Christian in their life that has uh, been uh, uh, abusive. Uh, some people have been very abused by their own biological father. Then sometimes when you say God is our father, you know, they kind of project that uh, on the God. But the volitional problems, these are the toughest ones. And that's where you need to use kind of advanced uh, strategic techniques. They say you lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So only the Holy Spirit can convict a person of their sin and persuade them. But still, I, I believe in free will. People have to be willing to drink the water of the gospel. Sometimes they just don't want to. Um, and uh, Jesus said, remember the rich man and Lazarus um, parable? He said, they wouldn't be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. Yeah. Thomas Nagel is an atheistic professor uh, at NYU. He's one of the most honest atheists I've ever heard. He said, I want atheism to be true. It's not that I just don't believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, do you think he's going to re be receptive to the gospel or any apologetics? So some people, they talk about blind faith. They'll say you and I have blind faith. I think there's something called blind disbelief. People believe what they want to believe. Why do people believe what they want to believe? I think it's because it makes them feel good about themselves. It boosts their ego or it makes them happy. And that's a terrible way to decide uh, truth, isn't it? Just because something makes me happy and makes me feel uh, good about myself. I think that's a very dangerous attitude. Let me try to go quicker. Persuasion literature. I read a lot on the persuasion literature. Uh, and are we trying to persuade people? Yeah. Paul says every Sabbath, he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and Gentiles. So the first thing, I read a couple books on persuasion that were interesting. Things you probably already know. One thing was good will. What kind of person are you? And that gets down to the fruits of spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Uh, so as you've heard these lines before, people don't care about what we know until they know what we, that we care. Uh, Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with another in love. Hank Hanegraaff said, there's really five gospels. Did you know that? Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you. I thought that was interesting. Number two, trustworthiness. Are you trustworthy, ethical, honest? Likeability. Do they like you and you like them? If, if, if that's not there, you're going to have some real problems. Do you, are you a friendly, happy, good-natured, um, animated person? Like, uh, similarity. Do you have something? Can you find something that you have in common with each other? Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Next one, keep your composure. That's hard for me sometimes to, to even when you're frustrated, you ever get annoyed at people? It's hard to, for me to keep my cool sometimes. So if you talk a little softer and slower. It goes over a lot better. Expertise. That's one thing they found. But this is a little tough because do you have expertise in apologetics and all that stuff? But you don't always have to um, if you have some resources. And, and I suggest some of those on my uh, handout there. Um, Socrates says, uh, he says, the, the height of wisdom is for a man or woman to say, I don't know. I always thought that was interesting. So we don't have to know everything. Next, do you have good communication skills? If you don't, maybe you need to read a book on relationship skills, how to use active listening and so forth. Uh, hopefully, let them talk more than, than you. Okay. Now, what are some of the basic principles of personal evangelism? As I say, what are the goals of personal evangelism? First of all, focus on your effort, not the outcome. Are you going to save a lot of people? Probably not, especially when people are that hospital, um, hospital, <laughs> if they're so hostile. And there's a difference between direct and pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism is anything you do 
before sharing the gospel. Now, the go- sharing the gospel is called evangelism, and usually it's a group effort. Uh, Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So it's a, it's a team effort. Sometimes all you can do is plant a seed uh, in them. Um, now, there's a difference between what's called friendship, um, uh, friendship evangelism and what I'm calling strategic evangelism. Friendship evangelism is a good thing if you're going to know people for a while, you know, like a relative or a friend or neighbor. But uh, some of the books on friendship evangelism, you know, how many people in your life can you really get close to and then be able to share the gospel? I don't know about you. You could probably count them on, you know, what, 10 people. So that's the problem. What if you meet somebody on an airplane and you want to talk to them? Well, you know, you're, you don't have time to form a friendship. So what do you do? So that gets into the techniques I'm going to share. And um, different personality types, I think, matters. If you're more of a relationship-oriented, people-pleaser uh, person, uh, sometimes you need to learn to be more assertive and be more intellectually minded and philosophically minded. What if you're just a very intellectually oriented people? Then you need to maybe focus more on people's emotional responses and have good uh, communication skills. Jesus had a greater balance between the rational and the emotional, didn't he? Now, basic resources. Um, I hope you all have these four spiritual laws. It used to be called that. I think the best one is, uh, would you like to know God personally? But I hope you have that. Do you have the Gospel of John in modern English? That's always a good one to have. More Than a Carpenter, I think, is a really important book if you haven't read that. Stealing from God is the best theistic book uh, on apologetics. And a lot of times, if you give somebody a book, I find more than carpenters only 100 pages. Everybody should be able to read that. But I find they won't even read that. So I'll, in the table of contents, I'll maybe just pick one chapter or maybe copy it off. Give them one chapter of a book, uh, I, I think, can help. Um, there's a lot of short papers that I put on my website. Uh, CDs, there's a lot of good CDs out there. Um, so I would also av- avoid controversial uh, issues, if you can, like politics or uh, even abortion, things like that, if possible. Paul, Paul said, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know how they produce quarrels. Don't overwhelm them with too many Bible verses. Major on the majors. I would never talk to somebody about the end times. That is so complicated. And there's so many different viewpoints aren't there on on the end times. Focus on God's love in heaven. Plan before, think about before you talk to somebody. You know, what are their needs? And that's why I gave you that handout. Hopefully you'll be able to look through that and find some of the things um, there that you can use. You might not like everything, and and that's perfectly fine. You probably have your own uh, way of of sharing your faith, but I hope you'll find some things. Uh, Don't guilt trip yourself. Don't feel guilty if the person doesn't respond to you well, because they probably, they probably won't. So now I'd like to go over some of my strategies. Can you look at that paper for a second? Okay. So like uh, on my website, I, uh, you can look on that. There's a lot of articles and papers I have. If you ever want to email me, that's my uh, email address. So how did Jesus deal with people through questions. Sometimes they call that Socratic question. Socrates taught by asking questions. But Jesus was just an expert on this, wasn't he, on asking questions. Now, how do you start a spiritual conversation? I don't know about you. That's where I really get stuck sometimes. How do you even start it? I've read some books that say, we'll talk about something in the news or whatever. And I just, if you can do that, that's great. But I've never found I can do that very well. So I have some ideas about it that you may or may not like. I usually ask a permit, what I call a permission question. Do you mind if I ask you something personal? Can I ask you a personal question? I'd say only less than 5% of the people say no. 
people will usually be intrigued at what you're going to ask them. And so I, I just think it's a good, um, a caring way to, a uh, uh, nice way to start. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Then I ask what I call transition question. Uh, are you a very religious person? Now, you might not like that because people say, well, Christianity is not a religion. It's a, about relationship. And that's true. It is about but certainly a religion. You read any book on world religions. So I think that will tell you so much if you say, are you a religious person? Um, that'll kind of tell you right off the bat, maybe if, uh, where they're coming from, if they're atheist or if they're coming from another religion. And also normalize, what they call normalization, whatever they said. Say things like, uh, I'm not going to read all the questions when it comes to this. Uh, you can look at it yourself. But saying things like, I can relate to that. I've struggled with that too. You know, I've had a lot of problems with organized religion, things like that. Um, you're right. Christians can be hypocritical and self-righteous, except all of us, right? Um, uh, and then assessment. Um, in my book, uh, I go over like three pages of assessment. But, you know, just ask you some questions. How do you feel about Jesus, the Christian faith? How do you think a person can make it to heaven? How do, what do you think God is like? Um, you can think of a lot of them your own. Now, the next one, I, if you remember anything from this workshop, negative inquiry. That's what David Burns called it. You're actually inviting negative feedback from people. And um, like I said, these questions invite negative feedback, help identify intellectual problems with faith. And you can suggest maybe some problems with that. But what bothers you or turns you off the most about the Christian faith or about Jesus or about the idea of God? And then listen to them. You know, and uh, be be empathic. Maybe summarize what they're saying. Oh, so you believe so and so? So I, th I think it's one of the best uh, questions you get. What do you like dislike the most about the Christian faith? What bothers you most about the idea of God? Things like that. So I hope you'll use that technique. I just think it's a very kind of compassionate, nice way to to start clarifying questions. Get them to talk about themselves. And your goal, like I say here, is to understand even if you disagree. Don't disagree or contradict somebody right off the bat. You know, well, tell, tell me some more about that. Oh, that, that's interesting. Can you explain that to me? Uh, what does that mean? Ask clarifying questions is a good idea. Define heaven. Some people, have you had people say, oh, heaven would be boring? You ever had people say that? And uh, uh, Paul Little wrote a book, I think it was Paul Little wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. So their God's very small. They don't think he could make a heaven that, um, that we would love. So the, I always define it like this. Heaven's the world of perfect love, peace, and joy. And they say, well, I don't, the, the, it's a hypothetical question. So what if, what if it was like that? You know, would you want to go there? And, and obviously Jesus claimed heaven is an eternal Paradise, which he said to the thief uh, next to him on the cross. Uh, focus on God's love. How do you know for sure that God loves you? Jesus claims everyone uh, loves us with all his heart. Would he, uh, do you think he was right? Things like that. I like this one. Apart from the Christian faith, how can anyone know that God loves us? Like I said, I've read, read the Quran, read the Bhagavad Gita, uh, things like that, and you'll find that they don't. Uh, contain a loving God. I'm, I'm uh, working with a guy right now who's a Hindu in my practice, and we talk about that. He, he admits there's no loving God in Hinduism, and I always say, well, you know, what good is a God who doesn't even love us? A God who doesn't love us, to me, is worse than no God at all. So make sure you define heaven from a biblical point of view. Um, um, the, number seven, the eternal assurance question is what I call that. Like it says, these questions clarify what the person knows about the gospel and eternal security. Things like, how do you know for sure that God loves you and on your way to heaven? I try to include the two biggest things I think about the Christian faith is God's love in heaven. Or how do you know for sure that God has forgiven you? It's asking them, how do they know? What, what is their assurance? Where does their security come from? And then motivational questions. These questions test how motivated and receptive resistance a person is. If they kind of fail one of these tests, well, th then you know you've re really got a tough person on your mind. How would you like to know for sure that God loves you? 
and on your way to heaven. I've asked that, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred times over the last 30 years. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. They usually will not be able to come up uh, w- with anything. Um, and next one, how would you like to know for sure that God has forgiven you? Things like that. So I think the first bullet is really important. How would you like to know for sure that God... You see how that's testing motivation? If, if they say, well, not really. You know you have a really tough person on, uh, uh, that you're talking to. Um, next one, number nine, exposing resistance. This is a little tougher technique. Um, like it says, negative biases towards God and the Christian faith undermine faith. No amount of evidence will convince someone whose mind is set against God or Jesus or the Christian faith. Um, this is not an intellectual problem. It's a volitional problem, but it also can be a moral problem. If people are doing things that they know are wrong, well, that's a moral problem. And obviously, they're going to stay away from God, which uh, chapter 3 of John talks about. So what, what do you do? I, I would just say, after you ask a motivational question, how would you like to know for sure that God loves you and you're on your way to heaven? And if they're, they're really wishy-washy, um, I, I ask things like, well, I wonder why somebody, anybody, I wouldn't direct it just towards them. I wonder why anybody wouldn't at least want to believe in a loving, kind, compassionate God. And if they say, well, I don't believe there is. I said, but what if there is? Why would somebody not even want that? Ask somebody. You'll get some interesting answers. Uh, I might say, if, if uh, I think if someone doesn't want to believe in God, no amount of evidence would change their minds. What do you think? So you can ask some of those questions. I'm not going to uh, go over all of them. Um, oh, the fourth bullet, though, is to suggest if they keep resisting and resisting, and you've got to say it softly and slowly. That's what the persuasion literature says. Keep your cool. Say it as nice as you can. Gee, um, maybe you just don't want to believe uh, for some reason. Uh, is that it? Uh, do you have any idea why you or anyone wouldn't at least maybe want to believe? You've got to say it as respectfully as you can or it's totally going to flop. None of these techniques will work unless you do it in a soft, slow, good body language, good tone of voice. Now, here's something I call gospel in a nutshell. Uh, you may or may not like this. Uh, I think it's important to point out the salvation is conditional, not conditional on our good works. We have to explain that and clarify that. But uh, the way I'm looking at it, even though God loves us unconditionally, true, that we can only get to heaven under certain conditions. And what are they? You have to admit your sin. You have to uh, believe in that Jesus is the only Son of God, that he died for your sins, that he rose again. So those are the conditions, hopefully, um, um, they'll ask you, or are you aware of the conditions for receiving eternal life in heaven? Because Jesus taught that every, uh, not everybody's going to make it. These conditions usually aren't what people think they are. Does that make sense that salvation is conditional? Not everybody's going to get to heaven. Um, so I think that's a good one. Next one, sin-unbelief connection. There's a connection between sin and unbelief. Forgiveness is conditional, isn't it? He's not just God. There's not. Uh, I don't believe in universalism. Do you? That everybody's going to be saved. That totally contradicts what Jesus in the Bible says. So, if somebody, like I said, if somebody won't admit their sin and is unwilling to ask God forgiveness, then they don't need a savior, right? And if they don't need a savior, they certainly don't need God or Jesus. So, one of the first things to do is find out if that person even believes they have sin. Um, there's quite a number of people in my life that have said they haven't sinned. Or when, sometimes when you ask that question, um, they won't even give you any answer. So this is kind of a conditional statement. Even though God wants to forgive us, we can only be forgiven and saved under certain conditions. And then you can explain the conditions. Uh, you can ask, have you ever done anything you or God would consider wrong or sinful? Um, and so there's some other questions, too. Um, and in this verse, I, I don't know, uh, I hope you're good on memorizing Bible verses more than me, but I love this one. It, we're in John, 1 John, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So the implication is if we don't confess our sins, we're not forgiven. If we do, uh, we are. And, you know, you can have you ever asked God to forgive you for your sins, etc.?
Next one, number 12, this comes right out of what they call cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy in, uh, is a form of therapy that looks at people's cognitions, their thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, predictions, expectations, all the things that go on in your mind. We usually think of a, a cost-benefit as like um, deciding between two jobs or something like that, and certainly you can do that. But you can do it on a belief. So you say, well, what are the advantages? Can you tell me what are the advantages of being a whatever? A non-Christian, a skeptic, an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist. You know, what are the advantages to it? So um, see what they say. And then, of course, you can be a good listener. Um, but do you see any disadvantages? They might not see any. Uh, next one, I would start off with this question. It's more of a... Um, um, a negative inquiry question. What, what are the disadvantages you think of believing in God or being a Christian? Any disadvantages? So you might get some good information by doing that. Number 13, examining the evidence. This is what Aaron Beck called it. Uh, here you're putting the burden of truth on them to support their views. Hopefully, if you, if you ask them for evidence, they'll say, well, what evidence do you have? And that would be great. So what evidence do you, ha do you know of that God does not exist? They won't have any. I know more arguments that God doesn't exist probably than then. I've read six books by atheists. I just wanted to see what they said. Do you have any evidence that God does exist? They won't have any. Uh, what makes you so sure there's no God? Uh, did you know there's good scientific evidence for God? And do you know anything about the historical evidence for the resurrection? Now, number 14, I want to... Um, be able to answer some questions at the end if I have a few minutes. What I call a catastrophic risk. This is a more advanced technique. I would not use this right off the bat. It's kind of a heavy one. The purpose is to point out how eternally catastrophic it'll be if they're wrong about the Christian God. And even if their probability is low. So you can't use this with, with everybody. Some people just aren't going to uh, gonna like this. But what do you think the probability is that the Christian God exists? What chances would you give it? Um, what are the chances you think or probability that there's a Son of God or that there's a heaven? So even if somebody gives it, um, what if a person says there's only a 10% chance that there's a God or the Christian faith is true? Still, I think that's pretty serious. I, I would say, do you, would you get on an airplane if you thought it was, there was a 10% chance that we go down? I wouldn't, would you? So you can try some of those uh, if you died in a car accident. What do you think would happen? What if a doctor said you had to take a certain medication or you're going to die and there was a, uh, uh, was a 10 percent chance that you would die? Well, I think most people would do that. Um, so you're, willing, you're saying you're willing to take a X percent chance. You're willing to take a 20 percent chance that there's no God and everything. Does that make sense? Wouldn't that be catastrophic? Okay, so that is kind of a, a risky uh, technique, I think. The next one, the magic button, again, that's kind of a, a more advanced one. Give the person a choice between pleasure in this world versus eternal life. You know, what if you had two buttons? If you push this button, you'd have, in this world, fantastic wealth and status and happiness and health and everything. Or if another bush, uh, button, you would push it, you would have eternal life in heaven with a loving God. It's very interesting. Uh, I asked that to one person, and they would not push either button. They said, well, I just don't really think about it. I said, well, think about it. I, I, I put it like this, like what I call a dichotomous choice. If you had two buttons, if you press this, and there's an eternal paradise and be with God, or if you push the other one, that there would be, um, atheism is true. Some people would not press the one where you have eternal life. He, this guy just said, well, I just don't think about it. So, well, what about your wife and your kids? If you press this button, you'll all be together in heaven, eternal, or you press this button, um, there's, there's nothing. He said, I just don't really think about it. So you see the hardness of heart there, even with his family. Resources, have gospel booklets. Um, there's a lot of short papers on my website. I talk about more than a carpenter. Lee Strobel's Case for Christ is great. So what if somebody rejects a resource? I, w I wouldn't give up yet. Appear to their, appeal to their shared values. I think humility is something that's going out the window in our country. Um, but people still believe in things like being open-minded and tolerant and fair, things like that. So you can kind of uh, uh, pre 
prepare uh, the person. You are an open-minded and tolerant person. I know it's, it's kind of a manipulative, right? But, you know, then would you be willing to read whatever? Or if, what if they're not interested? Oh, is it because you don't want to believe or just maybe you don't have enough evidence? Because I think there is some good evidence if you'd like to read uh, a paper. Um, brief evangelism. Very brief. Uh, this isn't for everyone, but um, I carry around those, uh, would you like to know God personally? There's other really good, like four spiritual law books. Um, but uh, to first, uh, a sales clerk, I might say, you know, uh, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? I, almost all of them say, okay. And I say, gee, because, uh, you know, how would you like to know uh, that God loves you and you're on your way to heaven? And now quickly, I, I won't really let him answer. I'll say, because in this little booklet, Jesus will explain exactly uh, what you need to know. Would you like to look at it? I say maybe 70% of them do. I gave out one to um, this one woman. And the neat thing is you'll find people that are Christians and they, they need it. Christians need apologetics. So I gave it, went to, um, what was it, Lowe's uh, at the beginning of the summer, and I gave a person one, and she said she's a believer, so I went out to my car, and I brought back a copy of Morning the Carpenter, and I gave it to her. So I, I went there the next time, and she just happened to be there, and I said, oh, did you get to read that book? She said, uh, no, but I want to read it. My mother read it. And that, so, you know, it, it's really cool. You'll find that there are other Christians, and maybe you can give them uh, a resource. Um, oh, keep notes. You know, if you do talk to somebody, and you know, you don't want to overload them and overwhelm them with Christian doctrine, but do you take notes? Who was there? What happened? How, did you use certain techniques? Was it helpful? Letter writing. This is a really good idea. At least people can't uh, interrupt you. Have you ever tried to share your faith and people go way off target? They start talking to you and they interrupt you. You can't, you can't get through to them. Have you had that happen? Yeah, I, I get that a lot. So if you write a letter, hopefully, I, I think most people will read the letter. Maybe you can find it. Uh, you can follow up with it. And of course, uh, prayer. Do you know? Do you have you memorized a good sinner's prayer? Maybe you um, um, have somebody that's very receptive and and wants to accept the Lord. Of course, if they don't, you still need to keep praying for them. But. Um, so I hope you'll look that over. Maybe you don't like some of those techniques. I think uh, the, the negative inquiry, ask them about what they don't like, because then you'll find out. Maybe they believe all religions are the same, or how can a good God allow, uh, send people to hell, things like that, or they don't believe in God. It's important to have resources to be able to give them. And like I said, you, you can try a book, but I found people usually will not read uh, books, even a hundred-page book, maybe. But um, anyway, do, do you have any comments, maybe from your experiences or uh, questions, things like that? Yes. Mm. Sure. Sure. If you read about Christian and, and, and theistic apologetics, and people are a little bit more um, um, knowledgeable about Christian apologetics, but theistic apologetics, uh, it's really interesting. So you're really going to have to do some homework. You know, have you really, have you really delved into uh, not only personal evangelism, there's some really good books at the end of that. I think I did mention a lot of books on personal evangelism. Norman Geiser is a really good one. Um, but you're really going to have to l learn. It's like taking a college course. I wish we had 10 sessions that did this and the practice. Um, I'm hoping at some point maybe I can get a group together practicing it. When I do couples care uh, therapy, I share with them all, all, uh, just a lot of great techniques on active listening, assertiveness, and so forth. But then I tell them, we have to practice. I said, you can read a good book, but it's all head knowledge. And they're not going to remember it. So I have them practice like a speaker-listener exercise where they use active listening and empathy and all that. So if you really want to get good at personal evangelism, you're going to have to do a lot of work. Read other books on personal evangelism. Um, read about Christian theistic apologetics and so forth. Uh, any other comments or questions? Yeah. Now, you know, one, one thing you can talk much about was the power of your own personal confession. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're right. Um, I did not say that, and, and I should have. I'm going to add that to uh, my paper. Now, here's my feeling about your testimony. I always think it should be fairly short and not 
not real long because people probably uh, aren't going to listen for a long time. But sure, you need to know what has what good has Christ done in your life. He gives us love and purpose and meaning and and significance and value in life. It's there's so many great things about it. But the problem is, if you asked a, a Mormon, uh, they would probably tell you how wonderful. Mormonism is, or they're a Jehovah's Witness, they'll all say it's fantastic. So I, th- I, th- I think it can work really well. I mean, with, with certain people, I think more receptive people. Um, and, and yeah, I, I should have mentioned that. Thanks, Sam. Any other comments, questions? Comments? Yeah. I have a wish, and I'm so glad Yeah, because I'm sure you have, I don't know at all, for sure. I'm sure you, you would have, if you were up here, you'd probably add a lot of things to what I'm saying. You've got to find your, your own style. Uh, you're not going to use all the things that I'm suggesting, but I'm hoping there's a few things there. Maybe just get your creative juices going. You know, how do, how do I, and you've got to treat people different. Like I was saying, people that are very receptive. You definitely use different techniques than you would if somebody's very resistant, which you're going to get a lot. And don't feel bad if you're not going to convert them because you, you, you're just not. Anything? Oh, no. No, you can't ask me. Here, bud. <laughs> oh, I'm really on the spot now. This is great content, and I just want to uh, recommend Steve's book. I've, written, I've read it uh, personally. I've recommended it before. Um, he's a couple of chapters, two, three chapters kind of in the middle toward the end. Yeah. Certainly, we want to use maybe more than one. T- if you're going to know somebody for quite a while, then you, friendship evangelism is really important. Obviously, having a good friendship, even in marriage, they say the Gottmans found out what makes marriage work over the decades is a good friendship. So it's just about. But for some people, like if you're sitting on a plane with somebody, have you ever talked to somebody and shared? I think you're going to have to use more of these techniques. And you're not even if you do one negative inquiry. You know, um, you know, I am a Christian. I used to have some real problems myself. You know, try to join with them. I've had problems myself, a lot of questions. I was wondering, uh, you know, about you. Have, uh, wh- how do you feel about the Christian faith? Or is there, is there anything you didn't, don't like? Or maybe, maybe, like I said, they've had some really bad experiences at church. Um, uh, parochial schools. Have you ever heard about that? I don't know if any of you went to one, but I hear a lot of like horror stories about people that have gone to parochial schools and, you know, the, the nuns or whatever have, have been really mean to them. But, <laughs> but uh, any other comments, questions? Yeah. One more. Uh, what's making my heart jump in, up and down and listen and uh, what's so warning about this is because as I've been reading about evangelism, Mm-hmm. in the early church. Oh. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so one of the things that I 
things that was so exciting is mm -hmm. some of the comments about, from Origen, mm -hmm. who said that the gospel really moved in the Roman Empire mm -hmm. simply by um, the laity, because mm -hmm. it was a laity movement, right. basically, mm -hmm. and that they were simply chit-chatting and mm -hmm. gossiping mm -hmm. about Jesus. Right, right. And that's and, and so yeah. and that it was a primary uh, understanding that all of us, mm -hmm. all of us, everyone is engaged mm -hmm. in bringing the message exactly to their neighbors and their yeah. fellow yeah. slaves mm -hmm. and all of that. that it, everyone had that in their head. Right, and right, so right. When I hear this today, uh. it is just making me really, really happy. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, isn't it very humbling to think about the first century Christians, what they went through, the, the, the torture, the imprisonment, the death, and not only to like the, the, their families probably too. And it's humbling when you see what's going on over in China and some of these other countries, what these, the, the, the persecution of these Christians. And, you know, do we have even courage to talk, oh, when you go out to a restaurant, leave one of those four spiritual laws. I might say, um, you know, I've just left you something I hope you'll read or, um, you know, will it work very often? Probably not. But, but it doesn't cost much and it's no big deal. Just leave one of those little things. Mention it to them. You know, I left you something I, th I was hoping maybe you'd be interested. How hard is that? You know, these other Christians are being horribly persecuted. And do we even have the courage to go out and talk? And people are going to laugh at you. People are going to think, yeah. Yeah, if you leave one of those, you got to tip well. <laughs> you, what's that? If you leave one of those, you got to tip well. I, oh, the, the, I saw a thing um, online where uh, the, the Christian, there was this thing that looked like a $10 bill or something, but it was really a track. And some people were leaving them without the tip. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. Do you? <laughs> That's a pretty, you, you, well, you'll have to tip at 50% if you leave one of those little booklets. Okay. Okay. Let me just pray for you guys. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for uh, their participation today. And, and I, I just pray that they will be more creative as far as the witnessing, that they give us all the courage to go out and, uh, and do that. And it'll be a really blessing to us. Uh, wh whether we convert people or not, it's just a real blessing to be able to uh, carry your uh, message of hope and the gospel to other people. So just I thank you for them. Bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.